Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Graham Smith, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. In today's program, we visit East Timor, Asia's newest and poorest nation, sitting literally on the border of Asia and the Pacific. East Timor, or Timor Leste, won independence from Indonesia in 2002 after 24 years of brutal military occupation, to which Australia and the US largely turned a blind eye. China's contact with East Timor dates back to the 15th century, when Admiral Zheng He's ships arrived in search of sandalwood. In the late 19th century, several thousand Chinese settled in this Portuguese colony, and by the 1970s, there were no less than 45,000 Chinese Timorese. Today's guest, who can hopefully shed some light on China's burgeoning defence and economic ties with Timor Leste, is Michael Leach, professor in politics and international relations at Swinburne University of Technology. Michael, welcome to the program. Thanks, Graham. Pleasure to be here. China was the first nation to establish diplomatic relations with East Timor, and unlike Australia and the U.S., it provided funds for its independence struggle and supported the independence movement at the United Nations. Why did it do that, and and what does this mean for diplomatic relations today? Well,、uh, China was the the first to uh, recognise uh, Timor Leste or East Timor as an independent country twice.、Uh, it did so in 1975 during the short-lived First Democratic Republic of East Timor,、uh, in which China recognised the emergent、uh, state coming out of the decolonisation era after the、um, Carnation Revolution in Portugal. And they did so again in 2002 when、uh, when East Timor restored its independence in in 2002. Why did they do that? Well, it's partly a reflection of China's relationship with、um, Indonesia, which has never been、uh, that close, and a few tensions there.、Um, I think also go back to 1975, and there's a Cold War kind of logic to the recognition there. By 2002, there's also China has a strategy, you know,、um, for the Pacific、uh, area and the Indian Ocean. And、uh, saw it as a strategically beneficial move to establish quite strong relations with、uh, Timor Leste, which it prosecutes in a number of ways that we're bound to talk about. How is it that China is able to justify supporting Timorese independence? I mean, surely that goes against China's long-held principle of non-intervention in other countries' internal affairs. Yes,、uh, I suppose it is inconsistent with some positions that it's held、um, in relation to Tibet and so on.、Um, Yes, but nonetheless, they they were a supporter of、uh, East Timorese、uh, independence in 1975, and again in 2002. I mean, you say that East Timor is part of China's strategic mm. plan, mm. and the the. Appears to have been a great deal of Chinese investment in East Timor. They've built a presidential palace, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs,、yes. the Defence Ministry, military、yes. barracks. I mean, what is in it for the Chinese? Well, to put things in perspective,、um, China would be something like third or fourth on the list of donors. I mean, Australia provides a lot of aid to、um, to East Timor. Portugal would be second. Portugal would be well ahead of China, and Portugal is a very small. Country, so what you're looking at is high-profile buildings, and it's a bit of a strategy,、um, as you're probably both aware, in, in other parts of the world.、Um, high-profile buildings, you know, the presidential palace, the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Defence Force building, and so on.、Um, so they don't necessarily cost a lot of money, but they make a bit of an impact, and it's a, it's it's an exercise in soft power. But it is important to point out that there are much larger donors to、uh, East Timor、um, than China. 
But as for what what it's about, well, there's a couple of there's a couple of um, strategies at play there. One is, of course, um, a geostrategic one. Uh, it's a very important corridor there on the Wetar Strait. Um, U.S. nuclear submarines go through the Wetar Strait. It's a very deep strait, just between Dili and the offshore island of Atauro. Secondly, there's a resource strategy in play there. East Timor has oil and gas. And thirdly. Um, as part of a wider strategy in the Pacific, the Chinese are obviously very keen uh, for small states to recognise the one China policy. And of course, in East Timor's case, as in other Pacific states, the local Chinese population um, from um, from the colonial era was probably more disposed towards Taiwan. In fact, um, the Chinese schools were on the Taiwan curriculum, for example, in the 1970s, that sort of thing. Mm. So that's part of the, that's probably the third aspect of their strategy. But it seems um, bilateral ties with China are extremely uh, active, that you're having a more than a thousand Timorese civil servants who are going to China for training. Mm. And then we're seeing a lot of bilateral visits going on. And also a lot of talk by by Timorese officials about the importance of the relationship. Uh, earlier this year, the East Timorese Defence Minister Cerrito Cristoval uh, spoke about how close defence ties were. We have a very very strong cooperation with uh, China Defence Force. We have, uh, uh, in terms of uh, the good cooperation, strong cooperation, to have established. Um, you know, peace and security in this region in the future. Uh, that's why I think uh, China have a very, very important role in this uh, region. So China also won this 30 million US dollar contract to supply naval patrol boats mm. to the Timorese. Mm. I mean, in terms of defense ties, it, are we seeing a tilt towards China? Well, uh, certainly China is an active donor in terms of military aid uh, to Timor-Leste. It's a sensitive issue. From the Timorese perspective, it's a very small state and it's surrounded by two very large neighbours, Indonesia and Australia. And a lot of East Timorese foreign policy, uh, therefore, is looking at other opportunities to balance out those tensions, to do what you might call bilateral balancing, multilateral balancing, to reduce the dependence on those two uh, large neighbours. And, and China is obviously, is obviously a useful foil for some of those projects, as we've seen also in Fiji. Um, if a certain you know amount of pressure is put on a small state um, by any of the, the larger players, um, China is always ready and willing there to kind of offset that. And you know, if, if you don't treat us reasonably well, we can always go over here to, to China. And uh, you know, China has been encouraging that sort of attitude, and, and I think that it does work. And certainly, when when Timor Leste uh, bought and they did buy these boats, the two the two boats, um, it certainly raised ructions in Canberra. I mean, it's the sort of thing that, uh, as Graham might say, keeps people in Canberra awake at night. <laughs> and uh, uh, and when we've seen we've seen uh, military visits, and and they provide a lot of places for um, for officers in the um, East Timorese Defence Force to go and do training. A lot more than would get to go to Canberra for training, although some do, but much larger numbers. So China provides much larger numbers, as you've pointed out, for the for the civil servants training and so on. These, these are all exercises of soft power, obviously. It's important, however, not to overstate China's influence, I think, in this regard. So at, at one point, China did offer to put in some radio monitoring equipment on the hills above Dili, um, ostensibly for fishing. And... Um, <laughs> The, um, <clears throat> the East Timorese government wisely declined that uh, generous offer. Uh, so the Timorese are very alive to the fact that um, 
uh, China's an important partner, but there are sensitivities, obviously, in relation to getting too close to, to China, uh, not least with its large neighbours, which certainly preoccupy its foreign policy. It is striking how different the approach to military aid is between China and Australia. We have a clip from an SBS documentary by Mark Davis made in 2011, where the former Defence Minister Julio Pinto describes the process by which East Timor secures military aid from China. Pinto is off to inspect another complementary Chinese project, a military barracks down near the naval port at Hera. And he describes the fairly simple process his Defence Department goes through when requiring assistance. And how does that happen? If you want a new military headquarters, how do you do that sort of deal? What what, what goes on in those That's negotiations? No negotiation. We send a letter and they just send a technical team to come discuss with us to provide us a design. Yeah. And then um, we need around uh, um, three or four months and they respond our letter. And so, but when you're when you're in China, are you discussing negotiations? Is there is there anything? No, else? I I meet with uh, Minister of Defence of China, and we discuss about the uh, defence in terms of uh, uh, assisting Timor Leste, and then yeah. they said, uh, uh, if you need something, you provide, you ask to to China to help. We're ready to help us to help you. Please. So actually, I even saw that the Timorese ambassador to Beijing, Vicky Chong, was once quoted as saying, we can get almost anything we want from China. All we need to do is ask. I mean, it really plays into Beijing's kind of great game, right, to be seen as dispensing this kind of largesse. Of course. And this is what players like Australia are up against because Australian aid is often tied up with very messy things like good governance and the process and so on, as is US aid. And then they're, they're up against um, this sort of process that we've that we've just heard, which is very user-friendly from the perspective of the um, East Timorese government. Very few uh, ties, apparently, at first instance uh, on that, very few... Um, Conditions and it's a very easy process uh, to manage, and of course, but and, and it fits with with China's strategy of, if you like, building uh, buildings and so on that are showy and show an impact and soft, but don't really cost a lot of money compared to say the aid programs of the Australian government or even the Portuguese government in mm. in in East Timor. I guess that comes to the nature of the aid. In the case of grant aid elsewhere in the Pacific, I found that where if you like, the host state outsources all of the design, all of the building, all of the construction to China. Often there are concerns about quality. Mm. And on the other side of the coin, if it's a loan, uh, there are concerns down the line about the ability of a state like East Timor to service the debt. Have these issues come up in East Timor? Yes, they have in in various ways. I mean, of course, um, Timor's in a at the moment anyway, in a better position than a lot of Pacific states because it has a sovereign wealth fund that's $16 billion. So, you know, they're not a huge uh, payback risk compared to some of those uh, smaller states in the Pacific that you might be talking about there. But of course, that's all based on finite resources in the in the, in the the Timor Sea, the oil and gas that will eventually run out. So it does depend when those are going to be paid back. Um, certainly, Chinese labor has built those buildings. And there has been, you know, grassroots tensions, I suppose, around that and not really providing jobs. Uh, and you'll see that uh, dynamic play in the Pacific as well in, in various places. So it's not like these programs have been with, without problem. Um, 
But uh, you can't go to Dili and not notice the prominence of the Chinese-built presidential palace and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which is on the foreshore and the beaches you're coming in from the airport and so on. Yeah, it's a high-impact kind of um, soft power in terms of its visual impact, in terms of its kind of public impact. Um, but as I, I suppose keep returning to, it's uh, by no means the largest aid program in Timor-Leste. And is there any kind of political pushback in in East Timor itself, expressing concern about uh, Chinese money, Chinese aid, Chinese influence and the quid pro quo? Not really, no. I mean, the, the major parties are, are kind of united on their, on their foreign policy position, as, as is often the case. Um, there's not a huge gap in foreign policy stuff between, between the two major parties. Now, there is a new third party uh, rising that is um, very, quite focused on corruption issues, and this may play into that. But I think people uh, across the political spectrum are reasonably cautious around uh, China's an important partner, and it's not someone that the uh, East Timorese state is predisposed towards annoying or confronting. Speaking of which, um, they did manage to do that in, in March of this year when uh, the president uh, showed up in Tokyo and, and apparently issued a joint declaration with uh, Prime Minister Abe about their serious concern uh, on events in the South China Sea. How did this play out? Look, there's a little bit of a sense that the, the the Japanese Prime Minister was making that statement, and I think potentially the East Timorese President and his team were taken a bit by surprise there, ended up standing beside the Japanese Prime Minister as this statement was being made about China. And it was an awkward moment uh, in many respects, and I think probably some lessons were learnt there. At the same time, though, East Timor does have a formal position uh, that international um, law should be respected in maritime questions. Um, and so that was consistent with the position of the East Timorese state. A big deal was not made of it between China and Timor-Leste, but I think behind the scenes there would have been some quiet diplomacy about that sort of thing not happening again. Some people say that uh, the dispute between Australia and Timor uh, over maritime boundaries is a miniature version of the South China Sea row. I mean, can you just talk us through exactly what is happening between the background, what is happening between Australia and Timor? The important point here is for your listeners to understand is that Australia and Timor-Leste have no maritime boundary. This is the only maritime boundary that Australia has not established with a neighbour at this point now. Uh, instead, there are a series of revenue sharing agreements in the Timor Sea that divide up the revenues and royalties from the oil and gas. Uh, Timor-Leste does want a maritime boundary um, and Australia um, does not at this point. Australia is uh, hoping to rely on treaties that were signed between the two states including the CMATS Treaty, which uh, purported to put that off for 50 years. Um, uh, Timor uh, has been challenging that treaty, and one of the grounds on which they've been doing that is that there was espionage, alleged espionage, on their negotiating team back in 2004. Now, there's a fairly strong source uh, for that claim. It's a former ASIS agent called Witness K, who's, who said there was espionage on the East Timorese negotiating team. ASIS being the Australian Security Intelligence Services. So, Timor-Leste has been challenging um, that treaty, and they want to resolve a maritime boundary, and they want to see it also uh, on median line principles. Now, the boundary around the Timor Gap is Australia's only example of a maritime boundary that is not median line. It was negotiated with Indonesia in the 1970s and it was on the older continental shelf principle and it was quite favourable to Australia. It's a lot closer to those islands, to Timor. To what, what is median, median line? Mean? Median line means halfway. 
And the current boundary with Indonesia in the Timor Sea is not halfway. It's much closer to Indonesia at the end of the continental shelf. Now, back in the early 1970s, Australia convinced Indonesia to sign up to that, and Indonesia wasn't uh, at that point extremely well organised in relation to these to these matters. Now, uh, the Portuguese colonial government of the time uh, would not sign up to this. The Portuguese realised that um, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea was approaching, which it was, and that median line was now emerging as a stronger principle of international law, and they refused to sign up to it. That's what created the so-called Timor Gap, the gap in the boundary. Now, during the Indonesian era, uh, that became a zone of cooperation, and it was div- the royalties in there were divided 50-50, and famously Gareth Evans and Ali Alatas were flying across the Timor Sea, clinking champagne glasses and dividing up the spoils, as it were, of uh, the Timorese maritime resources. After the restoration of East Timorese independence, of course, that uh, issue came up again. And East Timor at the time was a very weak state diplomatically. It had um, very little infrastructure after the departing Indonesian militia had pretty much, and the the TNI itself had pretty much destroyed uh, all their infrastructure. The TNI Uh, being the... The Tentara Nacional Indonesia, the Indonesian army. They were in a relatively weak bargaining position uh, through that time. And um, they... um, signed a range of treaties, uh, the, the last of which is, is CMAT, which was an agreement, among other things, to put off the maritime boundary determination for 50 years. So uh, the Timorese now want to challenge that uh, treaty, uh, and they've alleged espionage with some reasonably strong evidence from a witness who is an Australian intelligence agent. So um, they're trying to have that overturned under the Vienna Law and Treaties uh, for want of good faith. In a separate process, um, they're currently engaged in a conciliation under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Um, So they had a win in the opening rounds of that conciliation. Australia wanted to argue that these treaties have settled the matter. And you are perfectly entitled under international law to settle these matters by negotiation, bilaterally. But what the commission found uh, was that the uh, treaty does not provide any alternative dispute resolution mechanism at all. It just puts it off. It's a decision not to look at maritime boundaries. They said that was inadequate. So the Timorese, if you like, won that opening round. So that's now proceeding. There's a conciliation going on over the next year. And so that's the the sort of nature of the dispute. What's at stake is the amount of royalties in the Timor Sea. Um, if, If a maritime boundary was found at the median line point, uh, Timor-Leste would stand uh, very likely to get a greater amount of the of the revenue from the from the oil and gas in the in the Timor Sea. Now, of course, that links in with China. Australia has taken a very uh, strong position that China should respect international law in the South China Sea, uh, and of course, the the, um, the Timorese have um, been diplomatically pointing out that they regard that as in- inconsistent with Australia's approach to the very same dispute in our neck of the woods. And have the Timorese been very strong in their representations against China in the South China Sea, apart from that uh, slightly awkward joint declaration with Abe? uh, Have they stood up to China on this issue? The Timorese have um, pointed out in general terms whenever that issue has come up that they support international law as the prime focus of of resolving those disputes. They haven't backed away from that position. Um, But no, I mean, in terms of directly confronting China, no, of course not. No, they haven't done that. In September, Timor joined Beijing's Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Mm. I mean, is this a sign that China's sort of geopolitical great game in the Pacific region, the Asia Pacific, is beginning to bear fruit? 
I think so, and there are other um, bodies that are worth talking about. So Timor Leste itself um, heads up the G Seven Plus group, which is a group of fragile states, um, post conflict states, on the road to development. And what they emphasise in that group, and it, con- it contains Fiji and some African countries and so on, is um, uh, South South cooperation and uh, development strategies that are, that are led by the Doni countries, that are led by the countries themselves, rather than being told what they can and can't do, and so on. Um, um, so um, they've also Timor Leste has also been involved in Bainimarama's Pacific um, Islands Development Forum, which is as as you'd know a, a bit of a, an open challenge to the Pacific Islands Forum that came from Bainimarama, uh, that really focuses again on South South cooperation, development issues, and so on, uh, development priorities being set by the, the host country. And um, as we know, China's very um, adept at playing the kind of South-South card when it wants to and, and no matter how much it, it develops it keeps playing this card because it's strategically useful for it and it does that in Africa and so on. Um, and there are, um, are other bodies aside from the bank. I mean the, the CPLP, the Community of Portuguese Language Nations, is something that uh, a lot of us haven't heard of. It's kind of like the Portuguese equivalent of the Commonwealth. It's the ex-colonial Portuguese speaking countries around the world. Um a lot of people in Australia haven't heard of the CPLP, but it's taken very seriously in Beijing, very seriously indeed, because it's, it includes Angola, Mozambique, Brazil, Timor-Leste, uh, some of the smaller Guinea-Bissau, uh, and Portugal itself, of course. So China takes this body very seriously because of its resource strategy. Angola and Mozambique are really important to that. Uh, Timor-Leste is not, not unimportant to that. And um, so they will fly ministers over every two years to Macau. Macau used to be a Portuguese colony, of course. And that's seen as a really useful hub for the Chinese now to keep this relationship going. China has a well thought out strategy in relation to Portuguese language countries that, are, that a lot of people in Australia are simply unaware of. There is an important bilateral relationship with China that we've been speaking about, but there's also a multilateral one that's really, really quite important, where, where China deals with the CPLP as a whole. Um, and takes them very seriously. Now, you talked about South-South cooperation, where China holds on to its identity as a developing nation, Mm. despite the fact that it will soon be the wealthiest nation on Earth. Certainly the wealthiest developing nation on Earth. Absolutely, the wealthiest (laughs) developing nation on the planet. Um, Now, an interesting aspect of that is that East Timor is engaged very much in nation building. Mm. It only uh, came into being in 2002. Do East Timorese politicians find the Chinese model of development inspirational in terms of the number of people who are lifted out of poverty? And are they convinced by it? And if so, what model of development are they actually buying from China? Look, there's a, a few models of development, and certainly I think it does it does appeal to these to these certain sections of the East, East Timorese political elite. The idea of just lifting people out of out of, out of poverty through through um, big infrastructure programs and those sort of things. And if you look at the strategic development plan of Timor-Leste itself, that's the approach, um, that to spend the oil and gas revenue on big infrastructure projects rather than things like, say, health and education really, or agriculture, which might boost some basic development indicators. Look, those are improving those basic development indicators. They are. And it's not like they don't spend any money on those areas. They do. But it's just not the priority in the budget that big infrastructure projects uh, hold. Look, I think there is a temptation uh, to, to take advice from that direction, but I don't want to overstate that, and I want to go back to the, if you like, the fundaments of, of a foreign policy of a, of a country like East Timor. Again, surrounded by Australia and Indonesia, it's looking for ways to offset their dependence on that. 
one way of doing that is the historical relationship with Portugal and the CPLP actually works very usefully for them because it links them with countries on every continent. Uh, it's actually quite a, a much more useful diplomatic network than people in Australia th- regard because wh- when you've got the relationships with Angola and Mozambique and so on, the, you, you then hook into Palop and you hook into their, their regional fora as well. Palop being? Uh, being the, um, being the uh, Portuguese language countries of Africa. Yes. And um, so, and it's also offsetting, I guess, the potential dependence on Indonesia and Australia through the relationship with China. So, I, 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 certainly, my impression is that the East Timorese government is not uncritical of some aspects of Chinese aid, but they would keep that very much to themselves. And they do see this strategic advantage of offsetting dependence on the big powers surrounding it. There's no doubt about that. Michael, one way that East Timor is different to other Pacific nations that the US and Australia often express concern about China's influence is that in East Timor, there is a formal defence relationship with China. There are not one but two defence attaches uh, situated in Dili. The closeness of the relationship between East Timor and China in a military sense was reflected this year when China had its first military visit, uh, its first naval visit to Dili. And we have some audio here of the former uh, leader, Shanana Guzman, now Minister for Planning and Investment, assuaging fears of this visit. It is not a show of force. Uh, it is uh, to strengthen the friendship the relationship between countries and between people. Very important is relationship, people between between people, people to people relationship. Now, this people to people relationship is different in this sense, in that two defence attaches suggests a level of military interest that simply doesn't exist uh, for China elsewhere in the Pacific. Why two defence attaches uh, and why this level of defence investment? Look, Timor does have an active defence relationship with um, with China. It is different to the other Pacific states in, in, in that respect. Um, from Timor-Leste's perspective, uh, the relationship with China, and this is a good example, uh, gives it some leverage in relation to the large powers surrounding it. Uh, now, it's, no, uh, it's not lost on China that there's a new US army base in Darwin, that's only been there for the last few years. And look, it is possible that um, this is part of a new front line that stretches across the Pacific of US and China uh, interests colliding and um, and going into the Indian Ocean here, uh, as we're seeing. Obviously, that raised some concerns in Canberra, a military visit, though they played it down in a formal diplomatic sense that Canberra would have been quite concerned with that development. There's no doubt about that. Uh, so from Timor-Leste's perspective, I think it was, um, you know, a sign that the relationship between Australia and Timor-Leste is not at a high point. Uh, I think it reflects that. It also reflects the fact that they do have an active relationship, which has seen the Timor-Leste buy its two patrol boats from China and have its uh, have those forces trained by China uh, rather than in Canberra. But of course, uh, Australia does have an active defence relationship uh, as well. Uh, with with Tim in terms of training and those sort of sort of things, but um, in terms of the the, the sort of um, more active programs, um, China's met some needs of Timor Leste that were not being met uh, elsewhere, and that was a uh, a controversial issue. There's no doubt about it, and I do see it as part of a broader set of tensions emerging, if you like, a new front line, if you like, between I suppose U.S. and China in the Pacific in the region. It's interesting to me that that's almost the first time that you have mentioned the US in relation to 
East Timor. I mean, it is, as you said, the newest and poorest country in Asia, yet it seems to be playing this geostrategic role that is outsized. I mean, do you think the U.S. has actually taken its eye off the ball in East Timor? Look, I think the U.S. um, leaves some of that to Australia. Um, to to manage, but I doubt they've taken their their eye off the ball um, there. Um, look, um, China is is projecting into this region, and um, I would say the US is still a comp- is still working out its response in many ways. But um, I mean, you can't do things like host a US army base in Darwin and not expect there to be some potential flow on effects uh, from that. And and we're seeing those things happen. Timor Leste is not in a position to say no very strongly to China around some of these things uh, without becoming, in its view, too dependent on either Australia or Indonesia or both. Um, so they're the sort of uh, powers that can prosecute, if you like, a more aggressive foreign policy, though in a diplomatic way, a stronger foreign policy than, than Timor can. Timor's best approach as a small state is to not become too dependent on anyone. And as I've said before, China's a useful foil for that project, as is, as is uh, its relationship with Portugal and, and other countries that speak Portuguese around the world. So this is, if you like, a, a sensible foreign policy uh, position of the Timorese. Is it a little bit controversial uh, to then uh, allow, allow, as it were, a uh, Chinese naval visit? Sure. And I think that reflects the poor state of the relationship right now between Australia and Timor-Leste in some respects. And I mean, finally, can you talk a little bit about the potential emergence of this new front line? How do you see it looking in future? I would speak more about Timor-Leste here, but we've seen Hillary Clinton's comments uh, about the Pacific uh, in recent years. Um, We've seen uh, growing Chinese influence in the Pacific countries that Graham's uh, very aware of. And of course, we've seen tensions in the South China Sea that are perennial. Um, You know, there's no point um, pretending that those tensions... Uh, can't or won't or haven't spread into the Indian Ocean uh, in in this region. That they will, and of course, uh, at the moment, the ASEAN countries and China are having some tensions over over maritime issues. Timor Leste is on an accession path to ASEAN. Australia supports Timor Leste's accession to ASEAN. Why does it do that? Um, well, because um, that will put it more in Indonesia's sphere of influence rather than China's. I mean, so that that is. Certainly, these things are all part of a wider emergence, if you like, of, of a kind of front line, I think, uh, between the China and the, and the US uh, in this region uh, that we're going to see play out, I, I expect, over the next 25 to 30 years. One of the ways in which Australian foreign policy is perhaps different to the US foreign policy is around China. It doesn't have quite, you know, it, it, it has it's an extremely important trade relationship. And so Australia has a lot of sensitivities to deal with. Uh, will it be forced into um, taking a stronger stance? in the South China Sea, for example, by a Trump presidency. Who knows? How will that play out in Timor? How will China then exercise its kind of growing influence in those smaller states when that happens, if that happens? Yeah, so look, Timor-Leste is certainly part of that mix. It's in a strategic area. It's on the borderline of the Pacific and um, and Southeast Asia. It's a very important part of a very important uh, trade route, military routes and so on. And we can expect to see uh, more developments, I think, uh, uh, in relation to China and Timor-Leste over the next decade. After that wonderful summary, a big thanks to our guest Michael Leach and to my co-host Louisa Lim. I'm Grant Smith and you've been listening to The Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. 
Find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and you'll find show notes on Facebook to learn more about Michael's work on East Timor. This episode was made with support from the Asia Institute and was recorded in Hallwood Studio at the University of Melbourne by Gavin Neighbour. Our theme is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and GIFs are courtesy of Seb Donter. Bye for now.